Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Typically look at Philippians in the morning as we're going through this book. But every time in the morning I say we're turning to Philippians, no one's surprised. So I thought tonight I'd trick everyone. Philippians chapter 1. And since we're looking at section at the first section of the body of the letter, which is Paul's reassurance to the Philippians of his joyful condition, we'll read verses 12 through 26 of Philippians chapter 1. But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. For I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I shall choose I wot not, for I am in a strait betwixt two, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. And having this confidence, I know that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. And we end our reading there, trusting that God will bless the reading of His Word. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in Heaven, as we come to the preaching of Thy Word, Lord, we are told in the Word that Thy Word is powerful and living. And Lord, we pray that Your Word would be shown to be powerful, quick, living, and active this evening. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody here that does not know Christ, that You would beget them by the instrumentality of Your Word. Lord, that the Spirit of God would breathe life, that stony hearts would be taken out and fleshly hearts would be given. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone this evening who's come and, Lord, they despair of even life itself, Lord, that the words of the Apostle Paul to live as Christ, Lord, but lift their souls. So, Father, use, use your word. 
For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Well, I'd like to draw your attention this evening to the 21st verse of Philippians chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now, last Lord's Day, in the morning hour, we looked at the last half of this verse, to die is gain, pulling in the context and seeing what Paul meant by looking towards his um, trial before the Roman tribunal and his possible death and his anticipation of death because death was far better. Death was gain. Because for the Apostle Paul, death to him was a door into the very unveiled presence of Jesus. Now, that's not the case for people who don't know Christ. Anybody who does not know Christ cannot say to die is gain. In fact, if you, don't, if you can't say, to, for me, to live is Christ, you cannot say, for me, to die is gain. If Christ is not your life, then Christ will not be your eternal life. But the Apostle Paul knew Jesus. And for Paul, death was not a fearful thing. For Paul, death wasn't something that he shrunk from. For Paul, death was something he anticipated. He said, for me, to die is actually gain. And remember, we looked at what the Apostle Paul said, the reasons why death was gain to him. Because death was an opportunity for Christ to be magnified. Because death freed him from the bondage of the flesh in a fallen world. Because death brought him into the very presence of Jesus Christ to behold the one whom he loved. And so if Paul could say, to die is gain. But what about life? I mentioned last week that there are some people who are afraid to die. But then there are some people who don't want to live. There are some people who lie awake at night fearful about their day of death. And every single man, woman, and child will die. And they're afraid of that day. They don't know what's going to happen to them. They don't know if they're right with God. They don't know if their sins are forgiven. They don't know where they stand with God. And they're fearful of that day of death. But then there are some people who maybe they don't fear death, but they really don't want to go on living. They've lost the joy of life. Life is just miserable. And when we think about how the Apostle Paul rejoiced in death, you can almost get the thought in your mind, well, if death is so wonderful, Paul, then why do I even want to live? Is that the Apostle Paul's perspective on life? Life is just a bitter pill you have to swallow so that you can get to death, so you can be with Christ. Is death just a miserable thing? Every day, as Paul saying, I just woke up and I thought, there's just no reason for me to live. I don't enjoy life. I wish I could just die. Because death is gain. That's not in any way, shape, or form the Apostle Paul's perspective of life. The only way you can understand Paul's joy in life is to understand what he means by the phrase, to live as Christ. Now, Paul rejoiced in life. We made the point, looking at verse 18, 
In the latter half of this verse, Paul says, And I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. And that yea, and will rejoice encompasses the following verses, where he's looking at his trial. And he's saying, not only am I rejoicing because the gospel's advanced, because Christ is preached, but I will rejoice in my life, whether I live or I die. It doesn't matter. I will rejoice. So Paul didn't just look at death with joy. He looked at life with joy. Paul rejoiced in life. So why did he rejoice in life? Because for Paul, to live was Christ. So we need to understand what the Apostle Paul meant by to live is Christ. So in the first place, look at the meaning of to live is Christ. The meaning. This phrase, to live is Christ, encompasses the Apostle Paul's view of life in its entirety. For Paul to live, Christ. If you want to know what life was for Paul, it was one word, one thing, one person, one pursuit, one goal, one passion, one desire, Christ. He lived by Christ. He lived for Christ. He lived to Christ. Everything that the Apostle Paul could consider under the sphere of life is intimately connected with Christ. And for Paul to live is Christ. Now, if we tried to open up all that that means, all of the implications of that phrase, to live is Christ, how Christ touches on every area of our lives, it would take, it would take years. But we want to understand what this means at its root. What does it mean to live as Christ at its root? It's two things. The first thing we actually find in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10. In Philippians 3 and verse 10, Paul makes a statement describing his ultimate passion and goal in life. He does this in chapter 3 and verse 10. And then he also makes another statement of that nature in chapter 1 of Philippians verse 20, which we'll go back to look at. But in chapter 3 and verse 10, which I can only touch on, actually we'll read verse 9 as well. Paul says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. The Apostle Paul gives us this great statement here of, of, an, of his ultimate passion, his desire, what, what is the pulse speed of his life, and is this that I may know him. That I may know him. Now I want you to notice something. In verse 9, Paul talks about. How he is able to be considered righteous by God. Because we understand that in and of ourselves, we have no righteousness. And Paul says, and be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. Not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law. For somebody to take Christ, they must renounce any righteousness which they believe they have merited by the law. They must understand that the law was given 
to show us our sinfulness, but it is not a means of meriting any kind of life. We cannot, by keeping the law, excuse me, we cannot keep the law. It is impossible. Because everything we do as a fallen human being is tainted with sin and we do it with a rebel's heart. It's impossible for us to keep the law. Not one person ever has. That's why Paul said in Romans chapter 3 that there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that even doeth good in the eyes of God. And so Paul says, For me to be righteous, I have to be found in Christ. Not the righteousness which is of the law. Not righteousness which comes by keeping the Ten Commandments. But righteousness which comes by a different means. By a different path. By a different avenue. So how does Paul become righteous in the eyes of God? As God looks at him, he says, Legally, Paul, I look at you as if you have perfectly kept the law and you've never sinned. How? By being found in Jesus Christ. Which is why he says, But that which is through the faith of Christ, or could be translated through faith in Christ. It's faith that is in Christ. That alone is the means by which we lay hold of the righteousness of Christ. By trusting in what He has done alone. Taking our hands off of trying in some way to make God happy with us because we're righteous enough. It's only through Christ. The righteousness which is of God by faith. But notice, that is not the end for Paul. Paul doesn't say, now I'm justified which means now I'm considered righteous in the sight of God. Now my sins are forgiven, and that's it for me. No. Now that I am justified, I may know Him. I may know Him. Justification is the means by which we come to commune with Him. You think of the tabernacle and the holy place where the high priest would come and he would lay the blood on the mercy seat. What does the Bible say in Exodus 25? Well, I will commune with thee. God is saying, I will meet with you above the mercy seat. I'll have fellowship with you. Just like in the garden, I'll bring you back into Eden where the angel stood with a flaming sword. Like the hymn writer said, it's my heart, speaking of Christ, thy heart, it's flaming, it's, it's sheath would be. It's as if Christ, through taking the wrath of God, took that sword that the angels held and plunged it into his own soul. And because wrath is appeased, because of the blood laid on the mercy seat, now God communes with his people. And the great climax of the work of the priest was communion. And as I mentioned last Lord's Day, what is the purpose of God saving His people? That they might be with Him. That you might fellowship with Him. That you might commune with Him. As Jesus said in John 17, that you might be with Me where I am. That you might behold My glory. Christ wants to commune with His people. He wants to have fellowship with His people. He wants to pour out His love and reveal His glory to His people that they might find Him to be their treasure, that they might adore Him. 
And so, yes, Paul is rejoicing. I'm righteous in Christ. And he says, now I'm righteous. I may know him. I may know him. And that's what Paul means by to live as Christ. That I may know him. Paul is saying, in everything I do in life, I'm thinking about how I may know him more. I don't come to church just to come to church. I come to church to know him. I want to know him. I want to know him in everything I do more and more. I don't just read the word in the morning to read the word. I read the word to know him more. I don't try to walk in in a godly manner in my home just because I'm supposed to, but to know Him. To know Him. I want to know Him. That's the first thing. And the second is this. If you turn to Philippians chapter 1, not only to know Christ, but to magnify Christ. Philippians 1 verse 20. Remember, we touched on this when we talked about death being gain. Paul saw dying as an opportunity to magnify Jesus. He says, this is his earnest expectation and his hope that in nothing he should be ashamed, but with all boldness, whether he lives or dies, mind you, before this trial, Christ shall be magnified. And we talked about how this word magnified has the word mega in it and the Greek word that's used to behind to translate this word that we translate this word from and and mega has the idea of great and it means to make Christ great we ask the question how do you make Christ great well is, is Christ lacking in greatness so I have to add greatness to him we have to speak about him in exaggerated terms so that we can make him look better by no means Christ is perfect He cannot be made to look better than He is. Christ is infinite. He cannot be made greater than He is. And so when we think of magnify, we're not thinking of a magnifying glass that makes something small larger, but like a telescope where it reflects a massive object and brings it into, uh, and brings it down so that the human eye can view it. And so Paul is saying, I want to live, I want to die in such a way that the glorious, infinite Christ is seen in me, like as if I'm a lens. So the way I live, it it makes Christ appear great because it simply lets Christ appear. Christ cannot be any greater than He is. He's intrinsically infinite in His greatness. He cannot be greater. And so Paul just wants Christ to be seen for who He is. And we talked about how that is with death. He wanted to die without shame. He wanted to die with boldness. But he also wanted to live without shame. He wanted to live with boldness. He wanted to live in such a way that Christ was magnified. And we noted that the only way you can ever die well is if you live well. And Paul wanted Christ to be magnified in the way he lived his life. This was his consuming passion that Jesus Christ would be made to appear great, magnificent by the way he lived. 
and everything Paul was, was thinking to himself, not, is this going to make me comfortable? That wasn't, his, that wasn't his major concern. Because you asked, Paul, how can Paul rejoice in life? Paul, you're in prison. How can you rejoice in life? Paul, preachers in Rome are opposing you. So how can you rejoice? People you've, you've, you've loved in Rome and you've written to, they're opposing you. You're preaching. How can you say, I'm going to rejoice? Because Paul could say, look, Christ is magnified. Christ is magnified in my imprisonment because the gospel's advanced. Christ is magnified even when they preach against me because Christ has preached. Christ is magnified in my suffering and that's what matters to me, that Jesus Christ is magnified. And so you could take these two thoughts and boil it down to this. To live as Christ means to know Christ and to make Him known. To know Christ and to make Him known. And you need to ask yourself, what is the purpose of my life? Whatever the purpose of your life is, if you take it seriously, it will control absolutely everything you do with your life. Your goal controls what you do. If I was going to make mashed potatoes, am I going to go to Lowe's and get a couple two-by-fours and some nails? No. That's not going to make mashed potatoes. If I want to become a doctor, am I going to go to school to study piano? No. It's not going to help me become a doctor. If I want to live to know Christ and to make Him known, then I need to ask myself, how does what I'm about to do, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, help me to know Him and to make Him known? What is the purpose of your life? Why are you alive? Why are you living? To get rich? To have fame? To be popular? To feel good? Why are you alive? Are you made in the image of God? Or are you simply just the product of evolutionary processes, naturalism, all you are is a bunch of chemicals. You just are an animal, nothing more. Is that what you are? Or do you have a purpose that has been divinely given, given by God Himself? According to the Word of God, your purpose is to live, is, is given by Paul to live as Christ. It is to know Him and to make Him known. And that means that if you do not live to know Him and to make Him known, you are wasting your life. You are throwing your life away. If you do not live to know Christ and to make Him known, you're wasting your life. But what, what most worries me is not people who have a goal and are trying to reach that goal, but people that don't care at all about the goal of their life. Just don't care. They might read in the Word, I'm reading right now, to live is Christ, to live is to know Christ and to make Him known. Well, that's nice. But we'll get up and walk out of this place as if it was never said, as if it doesn't matter. But you have a goal. And everything you're doing, it might be 
your own pleasure. It might be your own happiness. I don't know what your goal might be. But in everything that you do, in every decision make, you make, you have a goal in mind, which is why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you alive? Paul says, it's to know Jesus Christ. And it is to make Jesus Christ known. And you will never be satisfied until you live to that end. Because you are made for that end. Look, you, don't, you know when you're drilling something into a, a wall, you try to take a hammer and you try to hit a screw, it's going to destroy it. You try to take a drill and beat a nail into a wall, it's not going to work. Why? Because a drill's not made for hammering. And you are not made, you are not created to pursue sin and self. You're created to know Christ and to make Christ known. And you will be broken and battered if you do not follow what Paul is saying. This is, this is so important. This is so important. This is it. This is, this is everything. If you grasp this, this will transform your life if you grasp this. So what does it mean to know Christ and to make Christ known? But then, secondly, not only the meaning, but the means. What does it look like practically? So Paul, I understand it's to know Christ and to make Christ known, but so... How do I live then? What do I do? Well, I can't go through everything. But I'm going to pick out a couple of choice examples that Paul gives of what this looks like. First, it looks like a godly life. Paul says in verse 22, But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor. And you could translate this, if I live in the flesh, this means fruitful labor for me. This means fruitful labor. Paul is saying, if I don't die and I live, that means I'm going to be able to labor and bring forth fruit. Well, what is some of that fruit that he wants to bring forth? Well, in Philippians 1 verse 11, we looked, when we looked at Paul's prayer, we noted that Paul was desiring that the Philippians would be filled with the fruits of of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. What does this look like? A godly life. Because when the Philippians are filled with the fruit of righteousness, what happens? Glory and praise to God. And so you see, by being filled with fruits of the fruits of righteousness, we magnify Christ. And it's also by knowing Christ, because it says, which are by Jesus Christ. So the way in which you become a more Christ-like individual is by becoming an individual who is more familiar with Him, who more has fellowship with Him, who is more often worshiping Him. It is by knowing Him, communing with Him, that we grow in righteousness. They're by Jesus Christ. He says, I am the vine. You're the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. But we have to abide in Him. And so being filled with the fruits of righteousness fulfills what Paul is saying here, to know Christ and to make Him known. 
a godly life. A godly life. We have been called to pursue a holy life as Christians. Holiness. Now, some people think of holiness, following the law of God is holiness. Some people think of following the law of God, trying to live like Jesus, as being something that is miserable. I just, I just have to try to keep these rules and regulations. And if I don't keep them right, God's going to be upset with me, and I'm just driven by guilt. And to be honest, some people wish they could just do away with the law of God. That's a completely wrong understanding of the law of God. If you look at the law of God in the context of knowing Christ and making Him known, you see the law has been given by your Redeemer, who is Christ. Not because that law is a means of meriting righteousness, but because you are righteous as a gracious rule of life by which you will be most happy and by which you will most know Him and by which you will to the greatest extent glorify Him. The more holy we are, the more conformed to Jesus Christ we are, the more we may be able to know Him, our Redeemer, the more like Him, the deeper communion we can have with Him. He hasn't given us a law because He wants us to be overwhelmed with the terrible pressures of being perfect. No. He has been perfect for us. But He gives us a law as a rule of life. It is for our joy. It is for our happiness. Holy, the holiest man is the happiest man. And by keeping the law, we fulfill our great purpose, which is to know Christ and to make Him known. And that's how we need to understand the law of God and holiness in that context. A godly life. Are you seeking to live a godly life? Are you seeking to be conformed to Jesus Christ? You will never... You'll never know, some Christians will never know deep, deep abiding fellowship with Christ because they so often have fellowship with the world and with sin. And see, it's Jesus Himself this evening. It's Jesus who stands and He says, He says, my wife, as He looks at His church, my bride, come back to me. It's like in the book of Hosea. Remember as Hosea goes to Gomer and he finds that she's been unfaithful. He says to his church, come back to me. Because you cannot have fellowship and communion with Jesus, your Savior who loves you, who has given his life for you, who shed his blood for his church. You can't have deep communion with him if you're having communion with sin. You're missing out on the, on the most wonderful fellowship with the most wonderful person, Jesus. He's far better than sin. But then also, another way to 
to live as Christ can be exemplified as is what we see in verses 24 through 26. Increase others' joy in Christ. So Paul says in verse 24, and this is a part of the fruit that he's speaking of, the labor and the fruit that will come forth from it if he is able to live. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. So Paul is saying that for me to live is going to benefit the church at Philippi. He goes on, and having this confidence, having the confidence that my staying alive and not dying will benefit the church of Philippi, I know. So Paul has a strong hope that he will abide and continue with them. Paul doesn't think he's going to die. He, he, he has a strong hope that he will live because he knows that his living would benefit the church at Philippi. And he says that I shall abide and continue with you all for your furtherance and joy of faith. Paul is saying, my life, my living, will be for your furtherance and for your joy of faith, that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Jesus Christ for me by my coming to you again. Paul knows that if he came to the Philippians again, if he lived, they would all rejoice in Christ to see what Christ had done by setting him free and allowing him to live and preach the gospel. And Paul's great desire is that the Philippians would progress in their faith and that they would increase in their joy and that they would, in the end, ultimately rejoice in Jesus Christ. In other words, that they might know him. To rejoice in Christ is to know him more. When you know Him, you will rejoice in Him. The more you experience Him, the more you will rejoice in Him. And the more you rejoice in Him, the more you will magnify Him. And the Apostle Paul says, My life is not for me, it is for the church and for the increase of their joy, for the progress of their faith. And Paul wants to live, if he lives, he wants to live in such a way that he is seeking to help other believers to grow in the faith. When other believers suffer, he wants to point them to Christ, that their joy might increase in Christ, that they might grow in seeing Christ as their treasure in the midst of suffering and and difficulty. He wants to live so that the church would benefit from his life. And can we honestly say, for me to abide in the flesh is more needful for you, more needful for this church, If I was to die today, or if I was facing death, could I say to the Lord, Lord, you please let me live? Because for me to live is more needful for your your people. What are you and I doing to help other believers grow in the faith and to help their joy increase in Christ? Are we just a blip on the radar of existence? We just, you know, we just come in and then we leave. There's nothing being poured out. There's there's no discipleship going on. There's no seeking to help others grow in Christ. There's no seeking to help others rejoice in Christ Jesus. There's none of that going on. Who are you pouring yourself into? 
Who are you seeking to help grow in the faith? In the way you live, how are you making Christ appear to other believers? Does the way you live make Him appear magnificent? Do you magnify Him? To other believers even. Can you say, for me to abide in the flesh is more needful? Could that be a request that you bring to God as you're facing your deathbed? Could you say, oh God, please don't let me die because for me to live is more beneficial for your people, more beneficial for your church, or would you have to say, Lord, if I died, it would make no difference. It would make almost no difference to anybody. Paul lived in such a way that he was always thinking of how in every conversation, in every visit, in everything he did, even how he dealt with suffering in prison and preachers preaching against him, everything. How will this help the Philippians grow? That's why he's writing this. He wants, their, he wants them to see his joyful condition in prison. Why? Because he's concerned about them. He doesn't want them to think that the gospel that the, the progress of the gospel is, is over just because he's in prison. He wants them to know the gospel's progressing. He doesn't want them to think the apostle Paul is despaired, is despairing, he's discouraged. He wants them to know, no, Christ is with me. Christ is magnified. He wants them to know that. Why? Because he wants them to grow in their faith. He wants them to rejoice in Christ. That's why he's been praying in chapter 1, that he wants them to abound in love and knowledge and judgment and all these things because his heart's passion is for the church to grow. And that is another way in which Paul means to make to live as Christ lived out. Then the third and last thing, just to point out, is suffering. And we turn to Philippians 3 and verse 10. Paul says in verse 10, That I may know Him, and that know there is by experience, as we've noted, and the power of His resurrection, and the fellowship of His sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. Paul wants to know him, and then he gives some very particular examples of what he means by knowing him, or in what areas he wants to know him, in the power of his resurrection, and in the fellowship of his sufferings. Now what he means by the power of his resurrection, we understand is, by as, his, as he rose from the dead, we look at Romans chapter 6, we see that His people, who are in union with Him, are brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, resurrected, they're quickened. But then also, that same Spirit that rose Christ up from the dead and brought them from spiritual death to spiritual life, abides in them and gives them the abiding power to fight temptation. Which is the argument in much of Romans chapter 6. We think of Romans 8. That we are to mortify the deeds of the body through the Spirit, the power of His resurrection. But then Paul also says that I may know Him, not only know Him by seeing His power manifested in my life in overcoming sin, perhaps seeing souls converted and the power of His resurrection manifested, but in the fellowship of His sufferings. In the fellowship of His sufferings. This refers to his partnership with Christ in suffering. Of course, Paul is not saying that he had anything to do with the atonement. 
Paul's not saying, I suffered with Christ and had something to do with atoning for my own sin. By no means. He's simply saying this, I am a member of the body. The head suffered. And so I who am joined to Jesus, a part of His body, my life will be a cross-shaped life. My life will be one that is marked by suffering. As my head suffered, so will I. The call to follow Jesus is the call to deny oneself and to take up one's cross and to follow Him down a road to a cross. It is a life that will involve suffering. The suffering of temptation, the suffering of physical things, suffering of relational things, because we are being pressed into the mold of a crucified Savior. And it is through suffering that we're made conformable unto His death. It is through suffering, pressed into that mold of suffering, that we grow in self-denial. That we grow in our understanding of the preciousness of our Savior. But the one aspect that is so, so, so precious about suffering is that in suffering, we do fellowship with Christ. In suffering, we have a deep, intimate, tender fellowship. When we are crushed, Jesus Himself draws very, very near. Like no other time. Samuel Rutherford was in prison and he said, Jesus Christ came into my prison cell last night and every stone flashed like a ruby. Why did it flash like a ruby? Because Jesus came into his prison cell. You're going through a very deep, dark time, you're suffering. Jesus is very near. Jesus is very near to bruised reeds. He is very near to smoking flaxes. He cups them in his hands and shields the he shields the smoking flax from the wind that would blow and snuff it out. He's very near. He puts his hand under the bruised reed and he keeps it standing. He's he's very very near. He is nigh to them that have a broken heart. And He actually fellowships with us in suffering. There is communion with Christ Himself in suffering that is found nowhere else. And that is one reason why the Apostle Paul looked his suffering in the face and said, I rejoice. Why? My purpose is to know Him. And if suffering is the means then I will suffer because I want to know you I want to know you I would gladly Lord I would gladly give away the pennies for the gold of communion with Jesus I will part with with health if I might just, just know you more. Just know you more. I will part with popularity or people thinking well of me 
if I can just know you more. If I can just know you. No matter what it takes, I want to know you. And so Paul says, I count them all dung. It's dung. It's excrement. In comparison with knowing Christ. In comparison with knowing Christ, what is a couple days of health? What is, what is a couple of years of health in comparison with knowing Jesus? Oh, if it, if it takes some, some physical malady to bring us to the point where we know our blessed Savior more and more, what is that? But a doorway to glory, to know Jesus. Oh, and I know it's so hard sometimes, and it hurts, and it does hurt. It's painful. But you can rejoice in that pain, because in the midst of pain, it is sweetened with the presence of Jesus Christ. And you know by experience that in your deepest, darkest times, in a hospital room, by a casket, getting a phone call, you know that as you were crushed, the Savior drew very, very, very near. And you knew Him perhaps more deeply than you have in the days come. The good days have been good, but those bad days were sweet because He drew so near. So Paul rejoices. And then also, Paul rejoices because it magnifies Jesus Christ. Suffering magnifies Christ because when the believer suffers and he holds to Christ, the believer is essentially saying, Christ is worthy of worship even when I don't receive any benefits necessarily. I'm not having any temporal, physical benefits. He's worthy because he is worthy, period. I will hold to him when I lose when I lose loved ones, I will hold to him. When I lose a job, I will, I will hold to him. When, when I lose temporal things, it, the, Christ is worthy. If I lost everything, Christ is worthy. And it is by the children of God suffering and magnifying Christ that the gospel advances. I want to make that point to you. You see that when the Apostle Paul was in prison suffering, the gospel advanced. That's not a coincidence. Christ's church advances through suffering. There's a story of a missionary who would walk barefoot from village to village preaching. And he was in India, and after a long day of walking miles and miles preaching, he came to one village, and they didn't want to hear anything he had to say. And so discouraged, he went and he laid down at the end of the village and went to sleep. And he woke up, and all the people of the village were surrounding him. And they wanted to hear his message. He said, why do you want to hear this message? They said, because we see your blistered feet. We see your blistered feet. And when people who aren't Christians look at Christians who have big houses, BMW, perfect health, everything they could ever want, well, sure, that those things aren't wrong in and of themselves. But when lost people look at a Christian who has bleeding feet, who in the midst of tears, in the midst of pain, in the midst of suffering, says Jesus Christ is worthy. 
Jesus Christ is worthy. That is the way that the gospel is advanced. Amy Carmichael said, Hast thou no scar? You cannot have followed far if you have no scar. So, through those things, those are the means by which to live as Christ is, is shown in the life of the church. And then finally, the motive. Not only the, the meaning, the means, but the motive. Why does Paul want to live this way? Why is Paul so consumed with knowing Christ and making Him known? Why, why is Paul determined, I will live to know Christ and make Him known? He determined that. He resolved that. Why? There must be something about this Jesus that set His soul ablaze. There must be something about Christ that made Paul be able to say, I can count all things but dung. And we could talk about the excellence of Jesus and the glory of Christ and the beauty of Christ, the majesty of Christ. He created the whole universe, the Bible says. He upholds all things by the word of His power. He's a brightness of the Father's glory, the express image of His person. All those things are true. And Paul will tell you those things, but I think if you asked him why, Paul, I think there's one thing he would say above everything else. That's what we find in Galatians 2 and verse 20 when Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You hear those words? Paul, why do you want to go through all of this? Jesus is the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You know how personal that is? Who loved me? It just, it staggers my mind. Paul could have so easily said, who loved the church? Who loved me? He loved me. Jesus loved me. Personal. When Christ was on the cross, shamed and naked, crowned with thorns, robed with blood, Paul said, He loved me. And He gave Himself for me. He was thinking about Paul. You can put your name there, Christian. He was thinking about you. And there was a time when Christ had to count the cost, didn't he? Are they worth it? No. But his love is so strong that Christ counted all things dung that he might win you and me. Christ counted the, the atmosphere of the praises of heaven as, as dung that he might win you and me. He said, look, let, let people spit on me. Let them crucify me. Let them make me bleed. 
that I might win my people. That I might win Paul. That I might win you. That's what's most important. Edward Fisher wrote, It is impossible we should ever love God till by faith we know ourselves loved of God. What is most important is not, what was the motive? Paul loved Christ. What was most important, Christ loved Paul. The more and more our hearts are gripped with the fact that Christ loves me, we will love Christ. And so this becomes very personal. The hymn writer wrote, See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet? Were thorns composed so rich a crown? Ere the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, love so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. And I want to challenge you. This is very personal. You see, Jesus, the same Jesus who gave himself for you, Christian, who loved you and gave himself for you, as it were, stands before you and says, does this not demand your soul, your life, your all? Have I not loved you and given myself for you? Will you not, tonight even, and if there's a young person here even, tonight, I will resolve, I will resolve to live, to know Christ, and to make Him known. I'll resolve to know Christ and to make Him known. There is no fence sitting. You can't say, I'll think about it tomorrow. If you do that, think about what you're saying about Jesus' love and about His death on the cross. It demands your soul, your life, your all. To live is Christ. And may the Lord bless this word to our hearts this evening. Let's end with a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the fact that Jesus loves us. And Lord, we do pray that Thou would script our hearts in such a way with a love for Christ that You would reveal the idols in our hearts and that You would compel us, Lord, to give all for the Savior whom we so dearly love. Lord, bless Thy people as they go from here, Father. We pray that Thou wouldst guide them, be near a friend to them, and bless them for Jesus' sake. Amen.